Final Word Cricket Podcast with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon and a special guest, a, a first-time <laughs> appearance. Why don't you tell us who we've got with us, Adam? Yes, we've got Peggy, uh, middle name to be determined, Collins, sitting on my shoulder at the moment, at least for the start of the show. I think she's hungry, so she might go back to mummy in a second, but um, born on, well, appropriately perhaps, in a rain delay of the Sydney Test match. <laughs> I think it was the day that was completely rained out. Day three was that? Day four? Whatever day it was. Day three, yeah. Um, Friday, Friday morning, I know that much, 3.38am uh, local time after a brisk labour. So if you're watching on YouTube, well, I don't know if we're one, doing this one. One more than Hanif Muhammad. Exactly. That's the pledge right there, isn't it? I might show her face to the camera really quickly. Hang on, let's see if this works. Hey, Pegs, do you want to turn around for Daddy? Here we go. Yeah, she's just a bit grumpy. Uh -huh. Just had a couple of blood tests. I'll pass it back to Rachel and I'll tell you all about the story of her arrival. Yeah, go back. <laughs> go back with your mum. I'll catch you later on. Catch you in an hour or so. So, so how many days old before she's on the podcast for the first time? Is this Yeah, I know, days? right? I think she's four or five days old yeah. or something like that. She could have been born at home. That was the... Um, yeah, the, the, the interesting piece of the tale, really. Like, we did the kind of right thing on Thursday, I guess it would have been. I spoke to you and said that, look, I think this might happen today, but we don't really know. There's no contractions, but we're probably in labour. Mm -hmm. um, and then the contractions started after Winnie went to bed, but not in a way that we thought the baby was coming. We thought, like, we're in for the long haul here. We'll be having another long, a long labour. And then at about 1.30 in the morning, things got brisker, if you like. Uh, and about 2.45, I, I said, we probably should consider going to hospital and got into an Uber. And the baby was born 45 minutes after we arrived at the hospital. So across oh. the reception of the maternity triage bit, uh, our stuff was strewn across there. Like all of our, you know, not phones necessarily, but like wallets and bags and suitcase <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and Rach uh, did a a wonderful job uh, making that all happen quite quickly. So, and then she arrived and it was bliss as it always is when they first get here. I say it always is. I, we've been very lucky that we've had early morning births. So thus you get that kind of nice piece of Vegemite toast and a cup of tea, which is a staple of the, the NHS, not Vegemite, but Marmite <laughs> toast and a, and a cup of tea. And you kind of get that you know, golden period. And uh, it's been, yeah, lovely to do it all again. We're so grateful that we've been able to do this a second time. What an extraordinary thing thing that it can all just take place in three quarters of an hour you know you the, yeah if I, I suppose if you watch movies it always happens in about well a minute and a half you know someone says push and then they push and then that's it but you know the the reality of some of the extensive uh, labors that people go through for a couple of days or longer at times 45 minutes seems a, a good deal yeah, absolutely. It was eight hours from start to end in terms of contractions. But just on that, like, uh, this is, uh, I'm not sure whether, yeah, she won't mind. We've been telling the story fairly widely because the baby was, was rushing out unexpectedly. Like, we were mostly concerned they'd send us home and say, because that's what the NHS does if you're not quite ready to roll. They're like, nah, come back in six hours or whatever. Yeah. We were mindful of that. But when it was clear, it was closer. You know, we, we get moved into the birth suite, which is really cool. Like, these nice big sort of spaces you deliver babies in over here. And they were filling up the bath and the bath didn't even get filled up in time, you know what I mean? It was like, it was that quick. <laughs> Probably 20 minutes in a delivery suite, 25 minutes tops. And the, um, the bit that really motivated Rach was they said, look, the baby's heart rate's dropping with each contraction now, each contraction, I should say, now. Um, probably because the baby's knackered. You, we need to get this thing out. And the midwife said, 
the, the magic word episiotomy, uh, the uh, where you get rid of the gooch, get rid of the Graham gooch, um, and and uh, and I said, and Rach said, hang on a minute, like we've just got here, we don't want intervention if we can avoid it. Let's just take a beat here. And the midwife said, the senior midwife said, well, we'll make a call on it after the next contraction, but we're going to be ready to roll, right? Because mm-hmm. we need to get it out. Next contraction, Rach pushed the whole baby out in one go. <laughs> so it's funny what the uh, it's it's funny what the incentive structure of keeping everything intact will do. Um, so that, that might have made it just a little bit quicker at the end. Um, I noticed now looking into the camera, I'm, 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 my jumper's got milk all over it, by the way, and spews and so on. But um, it's been that kind of time since. But yeah, the, the, the final That's push. That's just from you. That's just from me, the final. And, and I, you called me, I reckon. You're the first person I spoke to, I reckon. Mm. You called me within, what? Well, 15 minutes, Within 10 minutes, 15 yeah. minutes. And I, I hadn't communicated with the outside world at that stage. And you were calling about a work matter, knowing that I'd kind of managed expectations a bit with you, saying that, yeah, we might be in labour, but it might be yeah. another week. Who fucking knows, right? I wasn't sure. I was, just, I was basically just testing the water because, you know, even though the bath wasn't full because I was like, <laughs> okay, I haven't heard from you for a few hours. If you are still working today, then you know, we can swap notes about a few things. Um, and also yep. if things are moving, it would be good to get an idea of where they're at um, just, just so I could plan out what else was happening and, and all of the rest sure. of it. Um, yes, but, yeah, I think I got you in the hallway outside the delivery room, you know, 10 or 15 minutes I mean, not after even that. I, I mean, not even that. I was, I was standing on the other side of the delivery room. I, th- I think I just had a cuddle with Peggy for a few minutes and I'm like, oh, g'day, how are you going? Uh, it, it's here. It, it, she's here. Her name's Peggy. And your first comment was, you got that past Rach? Because I think you, like a lot of people in the final word community, assumed that we got the idea for Peggy from Peggy Antonio, the mm-hmm. Australian leggy, the, the girl Grimmett, as she was dating in the 30s. That was a big part of Storytime 100, wasn't yes. it? You, you went long on telling Peggy Antonio's story. And a number of people on, on Discord and in the broader Final Word community after that show said to me, if you have a girl, you should call it Peggy. Uh, little did they know that mm. it was always going to be Peggy. We sort of always had two girls' names who we were super keen on, Winnie and Peggy. So that was just purely coincidental. <laughs> that it's... Um, uh, but it could be the middle name, you know, Peggy Antonio Collins. <laughs> I think why not? I mean, it, and I like to think that it underlined your conviction to go through with it. You know, I like to think there's there's a little bit of, of Peggy Antonio who could rip the leg break and bowl an off break in the 1930s and yeah. could land them on a sixpence and all the rest of it. Um, what was her, her, her mother's middle names were Belle Myra. So you could Bell, 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 Amelia. Mm. I know. Bell, I Bell Myra, Amelia. Yes, she had about yeah. five so some names. Are, yeah. So Peggy didn't have any middle names. Her mum had a few, as you kindly mm. found in the research you did before Storytime One Hundred, and shared it on Discord. So it's a bit. Yeah, it's hard to find an obvious middle name, but it, you know, there's time if we're good enough. I, ha- I have actually pitched. I've been calling her Peggy Antonio, like just <laughs> in my arms. I've been going, "How many little Peggy Antonio? Come on." Um, but yeah, she's Victorian, of course. Peggy yes. was a Victorian. She was a migrant. She had an interesting but brief career mm-hmm. uh, and lived a long life. So there's lots there. And, there's lots there. And had a, a, a huge brood of uh, many descendants who were still knocking mm. around. Of, of may, maybe you could go with Antonia as the middle Antonia, name. Antonia, yeah. I, I think the problem now is that I have really belled the cat on that with Rach. She very much knows the Peggy Antonio story. <laughs> so it's a little bit like when in 2019 we were talking about boys' names and for mm-hmm. like a day... 
no more than a day. For about a day, Rach was entertaining the idea of Dermot, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to her, why I was pushing Dermot. Yes. Um, and then she got wind of why I was pushing Dermot, and that was the end of that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Not unreasonably. Um, little baby Dermy <laughs> come out the back with 23 on its back. Um, but no, in all probability, we'll never have a boy now. Rach is quite satisfied with two and done. I don't know, maybe. Never say never, but um, but in all probability, it'll be it'll just be the two girls, and we couldn't be happier for it. Well, I think that's a, a pretty good combination, and if she can carry a little bit of Peggy Antonio on into the world, then that's only a good thing. Another note from the other end of the life spectrum, uh, in talking about women's cricketers from an earlier era. Norma Johnston died mm. this week. Um, very much worth noting. She just passed her 95th mm. birthday. She was Australia's oldest test cricketer um, up until the point when she went on to something bigger and better than this. Uh, and we were talking about middle names and the way that, uh, particularly in an earlier era, uh, women often got rid of the first name and went by the middle name. So Betty Norma Whiteman, as she was originally, but she went by Norma as her first name and and Johnston was her married name. So presumably if Betty was the first name, then she was really an Elizabeth, which is also where the Peggies of the world start out generally as Elizabeths. Um, But Uh, but in your case, you've done straight to the start out usually as Margaret's. I did look into this. A lot of people have asked me, are you going to have an extended name? Mm -hmm. You're right, sometimes Elizabeth, mostly Margaret, sometimes Pearl. Um, But, Rach, we've agreed that Peggy... You know, these days you can get away with just Peggy, can't you? Sure. 20 years ago, you'd need to have the the elongated starting point. But, yeah, um, no, Peggy it is. Well, uh, Norma Johnston played seven tests for Australia in the late 40s, early 50s, and one of the all-time best women's test matches, uh, Worcester 1951, where she takes five wickets across the two innings in the match, helps set up a fourth innings target of 159 for Australia against the English. Uh, It's a low-scoring game, so no team has made a score that big so far in the match. They're 131 for eight. They're 28 runs short. They're in strife. And Norma Whiteman, as she is then, makes 25 not out, batting down at number nine, gets them home by two wickets. And um, she was being honoured as recently as late last year. They renovated and redid the Oval in Bathurst, where she was from, and one of the sight screens at one end is named after her, the, the Norma Johnston end. So just wanted to tip the hat to Norma Johnston, who played as Norma Whiteman for Australia in the 40s and 50s and had a, a fine test career. On a ground where we've uh, talked about women's test cricket quite a bit, the, the famous 2005 uh, Women's Ashes Test with uh, yeah, Isha and Catherine Brunt mm-hmm. uh, putting on that big partnership for the 10th wicket. And I think I'm right in saying Isha took... Bag of ten in, in a test there as well. Either way, it's uh, yeah, it's a venue that that's uh, always had a strong link to women's cricket. So I'm glad that's where Norma Whiteman did her thing. So uh, I suppose we better get back to the cricket. We have finished the Australian Test summer. It always feels a bit weird when it wraps up so early in January. There's so much of the actual summer to go. You know, it's just started getting warm if you're in the southern part of the country. We're actually getting hot days after spending most of October, November, December freezing in every respect. Um, Mm. I mean, you paid attention to about the first half of the test and then there wasn't that much to see after that because it, it rained all of day three, half of day four. I know it's very easy to jump up and down and put the boot into Sydney and say it's no good, uh, the combination of the Fun weather, too. the weather and the surfaces, though. I mean, six draws in the last nine Sydney Test matches, 
and there was very little in that pitch as well as the fact that we lost so much time. You know, even when things got going again on the fifth day, it was relatively straightforward to bat on, aside from some of the rough that the spinners were getting into. But it was interesting how it was discussed and that there are a range of solutions being suggested by different people. Some of them are being treated seriously, some of them are not in terms of... Does this happen consistently enough that it's actually a problem that needs to be dealt with? They're not going to move the Sydney test. You know, Tony Shepard was speaking to various media outlets, including your lot at SEN during the test match, and saying there's no way they'll move it from around the New Year's spot, but they are open to things like uh, using a pink ball, whether or not it's a day-night test match and that kind of thing, to see if they can at least avoid bad light in future. Yeah, so as ever with, with these matters, there's quite a lot there. Some of the criticism fair, some of it, you know, not fair. As I joked before, it's fun kicking Sydney because why not? Um, we're from Melbourne. We're duty-bound to do so. But I don't think we can clip the pitch necessarily because you just don't know how it would have played out. I think Barat made the point on The Daily Show with you that um, when you just factor in the number of overs bowled, uh, it was a three-day test match and mm. it would have been wrapped up in four days with the usual rhythm of things if not for weather intervening. So I think that's probably fine. Firstly... I- I've never enjoyed the test summer finishing in the first week or the second week of January. Last year we had the test at Hobart and the year before we had the test at Brisbane. Kind of get, can't wait to get you to the Gabba. Um, that, mm. that, that little test match you might remember where India won the series mm. spectacularly. Yeah, I, I've never been fond of the summer kind of wrapping up then and it's a relatively new thing. The Australian test summer ending in the first week of Jan only started happening in the Ashes series of 98-99. So... Yeah, it's more a frustration than anything I've got a solution for, but I wouldn't mind Sydney. Well, the, the problem is that Sydney invariably becomes one of two things, a coronation, a farewell, people doing a victory lap, a farewell lap, or it's dead rubber, or it's both. Mm. Uh, and, mm. and the mo- most competitive tension's been drawn away from it. And Sydney should be a marquee test match for more than just the fact that it's in Australia's most populated city for now. It should be a um, a big event at, a, at an historic beautiful old ground with so much that's happened over the years and it never seems to have that oomph about it with the exception of the money that's raised for the Jay McGrath Foundation where they do you know amazing work each year so yeah there's there's all of that with respect to the ball um, the solution I floated back in 2018-19 when India were out and it was a sodden draw but a sodden draw with a lot of time lost to bad light was that you should be able to simply um, use the pink ball at the time of day when you need it and put the floodlights on. Now, yeah. that was knocked back by Nick Hockley um, when he was asked about it on SEN this week, saying we wouldn't do that. But the, the usual pushback from those who don't agree with it is that we well, can't change the condition of the game to that extent from red ball to pink mm. ball. My response to that's always been, well, yeah, there You're is. I'm not denying changing it. Uh, yeah, I'm not denying that there's, there's a shift there, but aren't we always changing the conditions of the game? Like mm. the weather fundamentally changes yeah. the Melbourne, way in which the game's the, played. The, the Boxing Day test is the case in point where South Africa have to bowl on a day when it's 37 degrees and yeah. then Australia come out and bowl when it's 23 degrees exactly. on the, the two days either side of that. Or that's even if there's a storm, yeah, that's not even consistent. if there's a yeah, rain delay, which means that um, either side of it, the conditions feel dramatically different. Now, I know that um, picking up the pink ball is a bit different, but these guys are hardened, battle-hardened professionals who do move between colours of balls all the time. I, I think there's a way through there somewhere, basically, which will hopefully be enough to solve a lot of these issues because it's not as though you can't play when it's dark. Test cricket, we do that, right? We have day-night test cricket. It's just that period of bad light that is 
a problem, an ongoing problem, and there might be a solution there. And we saw that test match end in Karachi on Friday, which I was watching with Peggy, by the way, and, and I had her on my chest at the time. And I thought, how appropriate would it be if, you know, something I'm relatively obsessed with, tied tests, if one were to play out on the day my daughter was being born? Not quite. They fell, mm. you know, 15 runs or, or what was it? One wicket and 15 one runs. One wicket, yeah. And there was still three, three overs to, to go. go. So three overs so, with the way Nassim Shah was batting. There was a chance they could have gone for the runs, you know. Well, there was, and there was equally a chance that the wicket falls and it mm. could have been one of the most extraordinary finishes we've seen sure. in the fact that it gets called off for bad light with three overs left. I mean, hugely frustrating for everybody. I totally understand why people were shitty about it. There's also the invidious position the umpires are in because if you've got, like the Kiwis did, nine close catches all standing around plus your keeper and your bowler and you've got a tail ender who's just put one over the fence, well, if they wind up and have a swing and one of those close catches can't pick up the ball and they wear it, you know, they cop yep. it in the mouth or in the forehead or whatever it is, severe injuries or worse can happen. You know, we've had people of course. killed on the cricket field being fielders after being hit by the ball. It's not just batters who are facing up to the ball where that can happen. And if that did happen, then everybody would be down on those umpires ravenously saying, how the hell did they allow them to stay out there in those conditions? So you can't win as an umpire. You, you'll get torched either way. But you can understand why the umpires in those conditions have to take them off. But it's it's a matter of and, and it wasn't because of bad over rates either it wasn't that they pushed the game out like across that test match there was one day that was five overs short I think the third day but the other days the full 90 overs had been bowled um, in a pretty timely fashion but that was the case and, and I think because it was a Friday as well they had the extended lunch break for the Friday did, yeah. prayers so yeah. that, that also factors in but either way you know it's, it's just that it gets dark in Pakistan at that time of year the timing of the games doesn't actually really account for that. You know, we saw that when we were there, that you had bad light being a factor at the end of every day, even though it was very predictably going to be a factor. But it's, I mean, it it would be a drastic sort of thing to suddenly change the ball with three overs to go. But if it means that you get the ending to the test match instead of, a, oh, well, who knows how much that might have turned out. Isn't that a better way to play? That, that, that's what I think. I, I reckon it's one of those where it's not a perfect solution, but it's a better solution than losing time to bad light. And in Pakistan, that's the best example, what you described there with um, when we were there. It, it, bad light took the players off, what, every day? Or maybe mm -hmm. out of the 15 days, maybe two or three of them, they got the full complement in before bad light intervened. And yeah, for whatever reason, it seems to be an ongoing problem with Sydney. Their suggestions, the floodlights are less effective at Sydney. Like they're, they're, they've not been updated for... a a longer period of time than other floodlights around mm. the country. I'm not sure if that, that, that stacks up, but yeah, it's a range of factors that I think need to be considered here. And, um, and test cricket, and we'll go into this in a bit, is in a tough spot right now. Like test cricket has got enormous challenges in the future. And by the future, I mean like immediately and providing as many opportunities as administrators can to get games finished and not having mm. frustrations like bad light distracting us from the, better stories that are out there about Test Match Cricket and why we love it so dearly. I, I think they, they should look at this. And it's not as though they, you know, what you just said there as well, maybe they just use the pink ball for Test Cricket. Okay, mm -hmm. um, I don't support that. I don't support using the pink ball holos bolus because the red cricket ball is better. The red cricket ball does across 
80 mm. overs, changed more um, for whatever reason, and I can't tell you why, but the red, um, the, the leather and the way they have to colour the pink ball to get it right, it doesn't behave in the same way as the red ball. So I wouldn't want to give away the red ball necessarily, but maybe for one test match a year in Sydney, we make mm-hmm. that concession too, and that becomes a pink ball test. Start it an hour later. I know Jared Waitley's been talking about for a couple of years now starting the Melbourne test match at midday because Boxing Day is such a weird start time when you've, most people have had massive Christmas days and make that a mm. kind of a twilight test match. Well, maybe Sydney also starts at midday, but um, you do so with a pink ball. Uh, again, not mm. perfect, but I think we need to be open-minded and we can't be too dogmatic about any of this with test cricket in a bit of pain at the moment. So on administering the game, I'm interested in your thoughts on Richard Kettlebrett, a very good umpire, somebody we've regarded highly for a long period of time. His week in the third umpiring booth, Barat and I talked about this a lot with the low catches and the adjudication on them during the Sydney test. It seems to me that he's reshaping how a law is interpreted. I don't know if it'll have ramifications beyond this test match, but it seemed to have in that test match. And we went back and forth on The Daily Show a couple of times. Mm. I'm still not entirely sure where I'd land on this because I think if you read the relevant law literally... It supports the outcomes. It supports the decisions that Kettleborough made. The law says that if a ball touches a bat, and the quote is, without having previously been in contact with any fielder and is subsequently held by a fielder as a fair catch before it touches the ground, then it's out. In those cases, he was basically saying there's some chance or it looks probable that it might have had some contact with the ground while it's being held. But it seems to me that the way that we've interpreted these catches over a long period of time is if your hands are on the ground and they're taking that catch, then there might be a little bit of incidental contact with the ground and the ball, but the ground doesn't have a key part to play in helping you take the catch. You're taking the catch whether there's ground contact or not. It's not the same thing as having a ball that bounces into someone's hands. It's so that contact with the ground is whether the contact with the ground influenced whether the catch was taken. It seems to yeah. me that that's, that's generally been the interpretation and the way it went with the Simon Harmer catch that he overruled the first time, he then basically meant that he had to, to be consistent, he had to rule out anything with any slight bit of doubt in it from then on. So the two Steve Smith catches were sure. overturned. What do, you, what do you think? I mean, is that is that going to be something that, influences decisions down the road? Is that something that umpires need to get together and have a conversation about and actually Mm. decide how they're going to do this going forward? What does it mean? Well, my bias is always to give it out on these. Like, you'll have seen me before, Jeff. I'm always of the view that, fuck this, it's out. (laughs) But I'm probably um, mostly talking about those with the fingers underneath. The ones where if you've played enough cricket, you just know they're out. And you can make a case... Yeah, it, it's so cliche to describe this, but we'll do it again. The, the you know the two D imagery, the three D reality, the foreshortening, the Tony Gregg experiment, all those years ago. Like we know that you can make the case that the ball's touching the ground if you wish to. I don't think, as you say, um, that if your fingers are underneath the ball, that it's doing um, any of the heavy lifting, as it were. And also, like this would be unpopular, but that's why I thought the Ollie Pope one was out in Pakistan, because I mm. felt again. You can make the case that the ball touched the ground. It probably did. but the, And I'm, this is not going to help for podcasts, but if you're watching this clip on elsewhere, I thought that he he grasped the ball together. The ball did maybe touch the ground when he was moving his hands, his gloves across the surface, but that he'd mm-hmm. captured the ball in the palms of his hand. 
and right. that the contact the ball was making with the ground did not contribute to the catch being taken. So there's mm. those as well, um, which is a bit different. Uh, and there are also those where a player catches the ball and then the ball touches the ground after it's been safely taken, which can sometimes get overruled by the third umpire. They're all different, of course, but and there's no, again, we're lacking a perfect solution here, but I'd love them to move to a more commonly held interpretation that if the ground hasn't helped you catch the ball. I read somewhere, what about if, what about in, in park cricket where the grass might be a snifter longer than it should be? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, what if you take mm-hmm. the ball low to the ground, but the grass is just too long? Yep. That's not, that's not yep. unusual, especially early in the season where the grass might be a little bit longer. I know that that won't be receiving the same scrutiny with TV cameras and, and the grass that we see in professional cricket is shaved right back, so it's less a factor. But still, it's, it's a reasonable point. What if the grass was up to your knees? Could you ever take a catch, slow down? Because the ball would technically mm-hmm. touch the grass. And of course, the, the common sense answer there is no, if you caught the ball, you caught the ball. Heard Brad Hodge say that on Channel 7 yesterday. He's like, well, my view always when I was playing was that if you've caught it, you've caught it. And like there used to be a little bit of a, a code around these things where players were were mm. trusted to know whether the ball had gone in cleanly or not. Very hard to tell in the half volley, I acknowledge. Very, very hard to tell in the half volley. But for those that aren't on the half volley, for those like what you're describing with Smith and Harmer, that was down to whether the fingers were underneath the ball. You know, as a fielder, mm. if you've taken those. And that used to be enough. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, I, I just hope that these examples are enough to... And again, I don't want to sort of drag Big Dick Kettlebrough over the coals over this. Like, I get why he arrived at the decisions he did. And he was aiming to be consistent after going not out on the first one. He probably felt obliged to go not out on the second and the third, uh, even though it shouldn't work that way. It kind of does. But yeah, generally speaking, I think it should prompt a conversation around uh, around the spirit of the law, which is hard to interpret because mm. you can't really write everything into this that we'd like to, can you? It's, uh, yeah. it's, it, it, it's always, while we're using the technology the way that we are, there's always going to be conjecture around this. But these are examples of those that just should have been given out, in my view. Yeah, and while there is wording that says uh, that you have to take a clean catch before it touches the ground, you're entirely entitled as an umpire to say, well, that that's very black and white and that means one thing and that means if there's any ground involved at all, then that's not out. But it basically means that if that's, if that's the interpretation, you can't take a catch with your hands on the ground. You have to take a catch with your hands above the ground. You know, it, it is. Yeah, that's right. It, it, it does. It does get to that point. One, one other point in all of this as well that I neglected to mention before is that the Channel Seven camera on the first of those, which must have been the Harmer one, uh, was it Labuschagne batting or possibly yes. Labuschagne batting? So Fox is the host broadcaster, the World Feed, and therefore they're the cameras that the third umpire have at their disposal. So Kettlebrook got to see the Fox cameras in real time, you know, talking to the Fox director in the usual way. Channel 7 had a camera angle that was even more conclusive that he caught it. It was a, mm. um, a zoomed-in shot, an even slower-motion graphic, but it was mm-hmm. it was zoomed in, and it looked like it was from a yep. lower angle. And that was all, I mean, on the basis of that, you couldn't possibly uh, give it not out. Uh, I wonder whether there needs to be a, a conversation around, in Australia, where you've got a couple of broadcasters sharing technology, so the third umpire mm-hmm. has all of the tools at their disposal. And maybe this is like a challenge to broadcasters. Can you uh, can you have a camera angle on the cordon, which is low enough to the ground and zoomed in enough that mm. it makes it easier for the third umpire when they have to make these decisions? It yeah. probably isn't the sort of angle that is going to get mixed into their coverage too often, but maybe we've reached a point where that needs to be a priority. 
or an, a camera that's more overhead that can actually show, you know, the, the positioning of the hands, you know, and, and sure. whether, yeah. whether you can use your, um, you know, point. your flying camera on the wires instead of just belting the shit out of players in the outfield. Maybe it could just hang about above the cordon and do something useful. Who knows? You mentioned the McGrath Foundation. I mean, I thought this was extraordinary, the way this week worked. So despite the rain, over 120,000 people came yeah. to the test match through the gates. And the McGrath Foundation raised five million bucks plus. Quarter of a million people bought the virtual seats online. And you know me, I'm a cynical kind of person. And generally, my like one of the things that I'm inclined to think when it comes to charities is a, a charity that raises a lot of money is a sign that there's a government that's not doing what it should be doing. You know, in an ideal world, we live in a world where. Rupert Murdoch and BHP pay more than $0 tax and that money gets used to fund these kind of programs. But I had something of a revelatory week at the SCG. The McGrath Foundation people were all working in the press box, spent quite a bit of time just chatting to people while it was raining and so on, you know, watching the way the machinery operated behind the scenes. And and so much of it was, it wasn't just about raising the money, but it was about the contribution that all of these people who were involved were making. You know, there, there were hundreds mm. of volunteers out there who were, like some of them were nurses themselves, some of them were people who'd lost family members to breast cancer, some of them were survivors of breast cancer. They, and, and the fact that this match gave them somewhere to be, somewhere to come together where they could feel seen and heard, where their experience was validated, where they got to speak to other people who'd been through similar things and where it made it this community event. And and that was my realisation. It's not just about raising the money to fund the programs. It's about having this experience as the, the experience that these people can't get anywhere else, you know, a place to come together, a meeting place. And it was... It's a really profound thing to have done, you know, and, and watching... Glenn McGrath go about it and, and he would wander into the press box and rest up for a bit and then go to his next engagement. I mean, by the end of day five, he was sitting at this table there and he just looked completely exhausted. Like he had been putting everything into this for five days to to help create this, to help make it happen and to be the face of it and make it a success and then all of the hundreds of people on the ground working to contribute to it. I, it, I found it really moving. It was a, an extraordinary collective human performance yeah i'm really pleased to hear you say that um i know you've as you say your your starting point on these things in the past has been to be fairly cynical about them but i look i share that view um you know great mate of mine and friend of the show shannon gill was instrumental in 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 starting the pink test match at sydney all those years ago with of course the the mcgrath family and and uh and Tracy Bevan, I think it was, were the, the key players mm-hmm. at the very start. Uh, and to see it grow from what it did in that first year into what it is now is a, a staggering achievement. Those virtual seats you, you referred to are, are incredible. I mean, everybody seemingly mm-hmm. bought one of those. It's just so good to see that um, it's supported more widely. Uh, and CA, to be clear, they have multiple charitable partners. They allocate partners per test matches and per series and all the rest of it but yeah while this does such great work and it's also um the catalyst for government funding as well you know if if having a major set piece event like this naturally lends itself to greater media attention and thus 
um, access to government funds that might be harder to reach in the ordinary rough and tumble of the budgetary process. So, yeah, can only echo your sentiments there that this is a like a great thing that cricket's done, bringing loads of people together um, in in the interests of something that's a lot more than cricket. Also, a big week for Belinda Clark who got her sculpture added to the the Walk of Fame, as it were, where you've got. Richie Benno's statues, Steve Waugh, the demon Spoffeth and Belinda Clark uh, popped in there, that wonderful sculpture of her playing that big booming shot over mid-wicket, the first sculpture of a female cricketer at a ground, not just at Sydney but anywhere, um, that felt like a big moment as well. Yeah, that's a topic that I've taken a strong interest in over the years. There was that summer, probably five or six summers ago now, where I went round to every ground in Australia that had sculptures and learnt about them and wrote a long piece for the Cricket Monthly. Um, so, yeah, first woman. Uh, there's also the Stan McCabe in front of the members' entrance there at the SCG, which is quite distinctive with the shot they played. The story behind that is they wanted it to be an authentic depiction of Stan McCabe playing a short ball from Harold Larwood. So what they did was they got Steve Waugh, I might get some of the details wrong here, but they got Steve Waugh to go down to Barrel to the Bradman Museum to try on some of Bradman's old protective equipment. And I think they got him to model, I think Rodney Cavalier got him to model for the shot. So they made sure they got that absolutely spot on. So I'm sure a same level of care has gone into Belinda Clark's. And I kind of like that it's a, a hook over mid-wicket as well. It reflects the fact that she was a dominant player at her best, that she did score all over the ground and she was a pioneer. So, um, yeah, it, it, you can make it an elegant sort of push to mid-off if you want, but why not emphasise the fact that she was a heavy scorer? Uh, she was, what, the first woman to score a double century in international cricket as yep. well back at the 97 World Cup where they won that trophy. And, you know, we've we've spoken a lot in the last 12 months about Julan Goswami being there as a young kid and being inspired to go on and play cricket on the basis of what she saw that day. So... Um, yeah, Belinda Clark, she's achieved so much as a player, as an administrator as well, uh, and still giving back to the game now. Greg Barkley, the ICC chair. Often when we get Greg Barkley quotes coming out, we feel a little bit nervous yeah. about them, and uh, it was no exception this week. Walk me through it. Yeah, so Dan Bredig, um wrote a piece about this yesterday. It was, it was just a like a random interview that Barclay had done on New Zealand Radio. It was nothing special. It wasn't like a press release or a... But mm. there's this suggestion um, in Dan's piece that they might be looking at raising some collective funds out of broadcast money to help test cricket in the countries where it's struggling. And the quotes in the piece from Greg Barclay where he speaks to this are concerning. Uh, the pullout quote is that not everybody is going to be able to play test cricket. And that's kind of one of the concessions he's referring to in reference to this prospective $3 billion fund that, you know, if they find a way to get this up and about, it won't be there to necessarily account for, I don't know, I don't want to say teams 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, but you know what I'm trying to say. It'll be to ensure that maybe test cricket remains viable in his own country, New Zealand, where Mm -hmm. it's been in the past a, 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 a weight on their balance sheet. They were... Uh, the first country to actively support four-day test cricket for that very reason. South Africa, you know, we've, we've spoken about a lot of late, the West Indies likewise. So these countries that aren't the big three where TV rights money, and there was a, a TV deal done this week, maybe this might be a, a good time to talk about that. But in Australia, test cricket underpins that. In England, test cricket underpins that. In India, it does quite a bit of the lifting. Outside of that, it doesn't. So unless they find a way to socialise some of the the broadcast windfalls, then it's going to get harder and harder with that congested calendar space. We saw the the SAT20 start yesterday. I was just writing about this before that 
saw a tweet jump out in my timeline, um, which was, you know, enthusiastically gushing about the first day of the tournament from the official account. Then there was a hashtag for a betting shop. I'm like, yeah, that's about right. You know, like Mm -hmm. this is where it's going. We've spoken at great length about the um, the way in which um, the IPL owners ate up everything they could last year and they'll do the same when the 100 is eventually privatised and the big bash, if that gets privatised to an extent that's been discussed over time. Indeed, this week there was a story again from Bredig, I'm pretty sure, that Morgan Stanley are looking at, at being involved in the commercial side, potentially the commercial side of Cricket Australia in, in a privatised way. So this is only going in one direction. So when you hear the, the chair of the ICC talking about fewer countries playing test cricket, we shouldn't ignore it. Well, yeah, it's it's where they think that guillotine's going to drop, like you say. Mm. So, if, so the idea of having a fund to help affray the cost of actually hosting test matches, because that's the big issue. If you're yep. Zimbabwe and you're hosting a test match against Pakistan, it's going to cost you money, you know, just to actually stage the match, to have a ground for five days and all of the rest of it, uh, because the, the market for selling the rights for a lot of money isn't there. So having a fund to help subsidise it is something that we've been agitating for and wanting to happen for years. Yep. But if that if that becomes okay, we're going to have a fund which helps fund, say, the the next five countries who don't make money out of it, down to number eight in the world. Is that as far as it goes? You know, does it does it then chop out everybody else? Does it does it preclude? It certainly sounds like he's precluding anyone who's outside the current Test arena from even having a hope of being able to play, which seems so counterintuitive for the way that a sport is supposed to want to operate. Yeah, and the World Test Championship was meant to help sort this out. And Barclay's always been tepid in his support of that. When he took over his chair, was it last year or the year before? I've forgotten. Mm. I know it was during the pandemic. Um, It was probably the year before. It would have been 2021. He immediately undermined that. And the WTC had only been going for a couple of years at that point. Remember when it started in 2019 when we were at Birmingham, the main kind of takeout point was, oh, they're going to have numbers on their shirts. I I genuinely think that we're going to look back at the last few years as a glory era, a golden era, the good old days, if you like, of test cricket because Mm. there has been so many series played. And, yes, they're not perfect, these two test match series, the proliferation of those to ensure that they meet their minimum obligation because obviously two tests is the minimum required to be a WTC series. But... Give me that over what it might be. Uh, you know, we're only getting mm. two more cycles of the WTC guaranteed in the Future Tours program. After that, um, as we've you know routinely voiced our concerns about in the last nine or ten months, anything could happen. And I think that comments like this are laying the groundwork for a world where maybe it's a wildly scaled back World Test Championship. And you know, putting the pieces together, why don't say, the IPL owners like the WTC, for instance, it's because it takes up too many days per year. Test cricket, by definition, takes a long time to play. And if I know South Africa are back to four test matches this year, four in the whole year, and they don't Mm. play a three-test match series until 2026. You know, that's that's the direction of travel, which I think makes the Ashes series this year so important. You know, it's going to be so high profile. It could have the same amount of hype around it as 2005. So I think we should lean into that, embrace that opportunity to mm. to really inspire other countries to try and go on a similar on-field journey to what England have in the last 12 months from where they were when they got thrashed last ashes to where they are now. It's a very different story. And other countries can rebuild and do that as well. It, it isn't just the domain of England, Australia and India. Like England were a rabble 12 months ago. 
And if you don't have test cricket and you don't have series, then Amazon can't make documentaries about <laughs> test series, which is so the new one's coming out. I think we'll spend some time between now and, and next week watching that and uh, yeah. see if we can have a chat with the people behind it next week if That's we can line plan. that up. But, yeah, I mean, a, a few interesting bits and pieces coming out of that already that have caught your eye. Yeah, the, the well, the, the WhatsApp group. This is in the first step. I watched a couple of them last night. We've got the sort of embargo copy, whatever you call it, where Pat Cummins is in the car and he says to Mitchell Stark, oh, look at this. I've just been added to a WhatsApp group called Legends with myself, Scott Morrison and Justin Langer. That's the... <laughs> <laughs> I hope when um, I hope when Morrison lost the election that Pat Cummins sort of sledged him about shitting himself at Engadine Mackers and you know exited the group or something. <laughs> but yeah, the the um, the legends just, just group posting up posting up gifts of him like tackling that ten year old kid yeah. at the football match by accident. Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, uh, what was probably most surprising to me is they managed to milk two episodes. I say milk; it's not. It's probably the wrong word to describe it, but they they got two episodes out of the Ashes series last year, which took some doing, I'm sure, because that's the worst Ashes series like mm. maybe ever, or certainly of our <laughs> lifetimes. Um, so give them an Oscar for that. I suppose they had plenty of material to work with in the second part of the series with Scott Boland and Usman Khawaja, their personal stories. But yeah, I'll sit back and watch the Pakistan ep tonight, the Sri Lanka ep tonight, maybe as well if Peggy mm-hmm. allows, and and away we go. And we will hopefully the plan is to get Adi Brown on next week, who spoke to us. Uh, was it three years ago when the first one came out? It was during the pandemic, actually. So two, two it would have been yeah, early 2020, I think, around the, the mm. first lockdown. But yeah, he was an excellent guest when we had him on talking about the the, um, the, the, the I guess the best and the worst of that process last time. And I'm, I'm sure he'll be forthcoming again. So maybe, Jeff, you can go and visit him and I'll jump on Zoom with you. So the next series, the next episode, I'm sure they'll be just getting down to filming it in a few weeks' time when they head to India. Uh, the test <laughs> squad has been announced. This is interesting. I mean, this is a, a real load-up coverall basis test squad. So Warner, Kawaja, Labashane, Smith, Travis Head, Matthew Renshaw and Peter Hanscom. You've got seven yep. specialist bats to go. Cameron Green and Alex Carey are the only players of who have one job, you know, of whom there's mm-hmm. only one of them. There's no other sort of proper all-rounder and no other keeper. Um, fast bowling, the same lot who were touring around Australia over the summer, Cummins, Hazelwood, Stark, Boland, Lance Morris, and then four spinners, Lyon, Ashton Agar, Mitchell Swepson, Todd Murphy. So, I mean, lots of cover. Maybe they're just planning for players getting sick and that kind of thing as well, which often plays a part at some point. But... Uh, I mean, the leg spin component is high. Generally, when you think of touring players going to India, the ones who get gobbled up most are the leg spinners. And then an Ashton Agar in there who was completely ineffective in Sydney. I mean, that was interesting watching that last day in Sydney when you thought, well, Scott Boland might have been useful at that point on a a pitch that was keeping low a bit occasionally and that kind of length that he bowls. You know, Agar obviously was set up to fail in terms of the conditions and the scope of the canvas that he had to work with, but there was nothing uh, particularly impressive about his bowling on that last day or nothing that seemed to indicate that he was a threat. So, uh, I don't know. This seems to me like you get to the end of a summer where they've been completely dominant, everything's looking good as far as recent results go, but there's not much in that that says to me that this is a squad 
that will go to India and challenge. Yeah, oh, look, I, I, I'm pretty relaxed about most of it. Um, I'm also relaxed about the Ashton Agar story, by the way. Like, he was never going to take wickets this week. It, it was about getting a game in him ahead of the first test match mm. per Steve O'Keefe in 2017. So... Last week was the first time that two Australian spinners have bowled in tandem since the Sydney test of 2017 for exactly the same reason. So it was kind of about just getting a game into him, feeling comfortable in the dressing room, all those those kinds of things. It would have been great had it played out over five days where they weren't sitting in the dressing room, you know, playing cards and he could have bowled more and could have Mm. batted and and all the rest. But yeah, no, no concerns about Agar ideally going to India and playing that stump-to-stump round-the-wicket job that Akshar Patel did so well against India last year. You know, these are going to be pitches that are designed to get results in a hurry. Um, Why wouldn't they be? If you're – we saw a bit of this in 2017, but why would you not if you're the Indian – you know, the, the Indian curators and those that make the decisions around pitches, why would you not prepare for absolute Bunsen's? Of course you would because it stands to complete reason that they are going to be comparatively – at, at, at the advantage there. And look, it might very well be that it becomes a shootout along those lines, but India will back themselves in that shootout any time. We saw what they did to England um, in early 2021 in conditions like that. They trounced them at Ahmedabad in two days and it didn't take much longer than that in the second test at Chennai, three and a bit days, where they just went through them so quickly when pitches suited. So, yeah, I'd mm. say um, Ashton Agar to play the aiming at the stumps, trying to beat the inside edge roles, fine with me. He's tall. He's got a lot of experience. He's a sensible guy. He's, a, he's, a, he's an intelligent cricketer. Lion with lots of experience in that part of the world. Tick. Swepson. I'm glad they're back Swepson in. Whether he plays or not, TBC. But I, I would have hated him being dropped from the squad altogether on the back of what happened in Pakistan and, and Sri Lanka for him. He's only just starting his international journey. And he'll, in all probability, he'll be Lion's successor. And then Todd Murphy, who gets in ahead of Kuhneman, probably because Murphy has played a lot of first-class cricket this year. He's taken, what, 17 wickets at 14. Got uh, got a very good record at domestic level, the mini Graham Swan. Watch his little double pump on the way in. I, I enjoy that. Um, where Kuhneman's played very little first-class cricket. Kuhneman, of course, was in the squad in Sri Lanka last year. I'd be taking a second keeper. I think that's just fucking fraught. I just think that stuff is fraught. Um, I suppose Pete Hanscom could keep if required. No dramas like with his capacity to be a wicket keeper. He used to do the job for Victoria. But, you know, he won't be over there preparing to keep. He'll be over there preparing mm. to bat. I think you need someone who's ready to keep if Alex Carey steps on a cricket ball or or, or gets crook the morning of a test match. Uh, and then the batters kind of pick themselves. The only batter who's unlucky is a guy who's not even available for selection in Glenn Maxwell. He did an interview on Fox Cricket a couple of nights ago that described how close he was to, well, mm. in his own mind, at least not playing cricket again. So he wasn't even available in the frame for selection here. And had he not got down, I, I suppose he would have been in that group of specialist batters, all-rounders, you know, uh, a bit of both, but um, as he was in Sri Lanka, but but not to be. So I, I like the fact that Renshaw, you know, gets the chance. I'm, I'm sad for Marcus Harris, but that's not the end for Marcus Harris in the same way that it wasn't the end for Marcus Harris when he didn't get picked for Sri Lanka. Harris will open the batting for Australia with Matthew Renshaw when Warner and Kawaja retire. That is probably going to happen. He'll get another bite of the cherry. It's improbable he would have played in India, so it makes sense to go with Hanscom and Renshaw who have experience in that part of the world. Yeah, the Harris one's interesting. It, it's, um, it seems like they've been happy to have him as a spare player when they don't think that he's going to be required to play um, and and then when there's a scenario where he might actually be required to play. I mean, it'd be interesting to see what happens if, say, Warner goes and has three bad test matches in a row, you know, mm. whether, uh, whether whether the pressure to move... Like, I, I, 
I can't see him serenely batting through five poor test matches in the Ashes again in the same way that he was allowed to do in, in 2019. So if you've, if you've got a spare opener, then you have to be prepared to play them. And I wonder if they are actually prepared to play Harris in those conditions, it seems like. Well, well, well Warner, is the, Warner is the reigning player of the series. So, uh, oh, what a joke that was. <laughs> what an absolute fucking farce that was. I mean, yeah, it was a great innings. You don't get player of the series unless you've done more than one thing. You have to do more than one thing. You have to play more than one good innings. Well, it's done, on, it's done on somewhere. Uh, yeah, I saw somewhere it's done on a 3 2 1 voting system. I'm not sure how many um, members of the TV team got a chance to vote, but let's assume he got three votes from all of them. They must have had so many people voting because. How could have he yeah. tallied enough votes to have offset, presumably, Travis Head would have cleaned up in Brisbane? Unless Travis Head didn't clean up yes. in Brisbane. Maybe maybe the fly in the ointment was that Head didn't get votes, three votes from everybody in Brisbane and someone gave a three to Cummins. Rabada, someone gave Rabada, Rabada votes for eight possibly. wickets in the... Yeah, might have got a three from... I doubt it, though, in a losing side. And then just trying to pace it out, how this would have worked in, in Sydney... Yeah, Warner's not in the votes, but I suppose Travis Head doesn't quite get in the votes either because they they pick... Even know, though he probably Ka- should have Kawaja, his- Yeah, well, Kawaja gets the three from everybody. Mm. Probably a bowler gets the two. Well, and Smith made 100 and as well. Sm- oh, so. Smith made 100, of course. Smith, Smith and, that's right. So they're, they're gobbling up five of the six on offer and maybe Head gets a couple of... So I see how it's happened mm. logistically. But yeah, it does jar, doesn't it? That even um, mm. unpicking the system that... You can make one contribution and, and that be enough to win player of the series. By definition, it does sound weird. Yeah, you would think that there'd need to be votes per innings, per match innings rather than per uh, per match or something like that. What, what did you think about my point before about what we're going to rock up to in India? Like surely, right? Surely, mm. surely, surely it's going to be four sand pits. It's going to be Roland Garros. Oh, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? Uh, it's, if you've got Akshat Patel... You know, coming in from the wings, you've got. I mean, they've been leaving out Kuldeep Yadav, the way that he's been bowling. You've got Ashwin as good as he's ever been. Mm. Like, why not? And and you're up against Todd Murphy and Mitchell Swepson. You know, as the reserve spinners, it, there's it's not the same class. So, yeah, and and we saw the way Rohit Sharma batted on turning surfaces in that series against England where, you know, they couldn't make a run yeah, and he's yeah. peeling off hundreds on those kind of tracks. If you've got the ability to do it and they've got players who can do it, yeah. They're asking a lot of Kawaja, aren't they? Kawaja was Australia's best player of spin in the subcontinent last year and mm-hmm. he's a vastly improved player against spin. Didn't even get picked in India in 2017 when he was a standing member of the side that has overlooked him in favour of yes. Shaw Marsh through that, that but series. He was, in, he, was, he was in the Marcus Harris spot in that series where they... they couldn't bear to leave him out of the squad, but they also knew that they couldn't pick him because at the time, his yeah, record against spin was so poor. That's right, but it feels so, like he's doing. Yeah, obviously, Smith and Labuschagne is your one and two seed, but you can't do it with two. And no. Kawaja was so good in in well, I, I guess it's disingenuous to say his way he played in Pakistan will be transferable to India because the Pakistan surfaces that we were there for didn't turn. But in Sri Lanka, he made that 70-odd, didn't he, which was so impressive. So, uh, yeah, I wonder, yeah, the Kawaja. And again, coming off that 195 not out last week, just to probably the one player this summer who didn't cash in, um, saved the best for last. I, I get, I, I, I know you guys went through the declaration debate around him and I'm coming to this late, but like, of course they declared when they declared. Imagine they had have gone out and batted again when they needed Continued to take... batting. Yeah. What was it? Like, it, 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 it just... It, it, they were never going to go out and bat again 
in that scenario. I, I just don't believe that anyone thought that was a realistic prospect. Had they not lost the previous day, sure, you can make the case. But day four, still in your first well, innings, even, come on. Even even had they not lost the previous session, I think if they'd had six sessions, sure. they would have batted in the first session. But, you know, with, with five to go, 150 overs left, no. Um, the other squad that has come out in, from an Australian perspective is the Women's World Cup squad. That's going to be the same for us. Oh, series against Pakistan, that's preparation. Uh, Meg Lanning back as captain is the big news out of it. Pretty much as you would expect, I think if you if if I'm plucking an eleven out of this, it mostly writes itself. It's Healy, Mooney, Lanning, probably Talia McGrath at four. I think Elise Perry's got herself back into this eleven. I reckon this is how it'll happen because she made those two fast half centuries in India just recently. Um, she's been going great guns in the 50 over stuff as well hitting more sixes scoring faster and so now that Rachel Haynes has gone from that five spot I think that's where Perry will come in yeah and then you could go Gardner six Harris seven and they they could be floaters you know they could come up the order if it's only two down with 17 or 18 overs gone or whatever it is um Jess Jonathan back fit Megan shoot in the mix, Darcy Brown, and then one of Alana King or Georgia Wareham, who's also back after a long injury layoff. Um, she's got the edge as far as batting goes, but King, it's probably her spot at the moment. She's been so good and so consistent. So they've got the the batch of spare all-rounders in Kim Garth, Heather Graham, Annabelle Sutherland, and the players who've missed out in that all-rounder sort of area. Nicola Carey, uh, Phoebe Litchfield is out as a spare bat, but you know, she's got years and years on her side. And Amanda Wellington, now that she's got two league spinners ahead of her in the queue, isn't in the squad, but they're all on standby. Um, but, yeah, it'll be, be interesting to see particularly what happens with the the Perry situation um, and Lanning coming back. They've both played for Victoria the last couple of weeks. Um, Lanning made a half century and a, a 29 looked okay, but Perry... 130 off 95 <laughs> and 147 off 125. I mean, not known as the fastest scorer in 50 over cricket, but it's like she's making a point that it doesn't matter what the format, I can go at a very good strike rate now and I'm going to keep doing it. She's doing exactly as she did after the 2018 World Cup in India where she returned to the Big Bash. Uh, sorry, it was in the West Indies. They won, they won over there, but... but Perry was kind of surplus to requirements, batting down at six. Yeah. Had a monster. Seven sometimes. Had a monster big bash. I think she, that was the year she made 777 runs, I reckon. Yeah. Um, and just to, you know, establish where she sat in the Australian pecking order. But, yeah, it's it's a it's a statement that she's made there in a WNCL. Great to see Meg Lanning back. Uh, talk about depth. I mean, you know, let's bring back Meg Lanning, who's led Australia to three titles mm. in this format of the game and four World Cup wins and a Commonwealth Games gold medal. Yep. And Georgia Wareham, who's played in at least a couple of those T20 World Cup wins in 2018 and 2020, back from injury. In a way, a bit of a surprise that she's back, but what a happy surprise it is for Australia. I popped up a sort of slightly facetious tweet last night saying, if you ran a computer simulation of this World Cup, Australia are going to win 95 times with this with this side. And that's not... Um, <laughs> and that's factoring in the volatility of T20 cricket. If this, if this were one-day yeah. cricket, I'd say they were going to win 98 of the World Cups out of 100 played. <laughs> I mean, it just doesn't seem possible that this group can lose unless something goes wrong, horrifically mm-hmm. wrong. They are stronger than they were last year, which is hard to conceive of. So... Nick Carey not getting a Guernsey. I mean, Christ. Mm. Nick Carey would be in the starting 11 of every side in the world. Indeed, she'd be in the best few players in she'd every team. She'd be in the team. starting four. 
Starting four, that's right. She would be, yeah. you know, just to pick the England team apart, she would be um, bowling 10 overs and batting in the top five for England, likewise for India, and she can't yeah. even get in the Australian squad. Um, yeah. So it, 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 it speaks volumes about the depth. And that's not necessarily a great thing for women's cricket, by the way. And, you know, I sometimes just, you know, I just sort of ponder that, you know, the multi-speed economy with women's cricket and this is nobody's fault, certainly not Australia's fault. They're entitled to go out there and boss sides and set the standard. But yes, whilst we've spent God knows how much time on this podcast talking about the progression of, of countries in women's cricket, with Australia just getting better and better and more and more imposing, it makes it harder and harder to believe that anyone else will win. Mm. Um, maybe India's the next most likely with England a three seed coming into this World Cup, given that England have done a bit of a, a bit of a renovation on their T20 side in the last 12 months, a younger squad they're sending to South Africa. Um, speaking of younger squads, the um, Women's Under-19s World Cup starts next week as well. That's the first time that tournament's been played. That's a 50-over comp. I think there's yep. like 18 teams in it or something. It's uh, maybe mm. 20 teams. It's a really big competition. So that's where the ICC are making sure that they, they give lots of opportunities to, to players from associate nations, which is great. So we'll we'll follow that the best we can, even though we probably won't know too many of the players, but we'll, we'll give it our best shot. And in terms of depth, it's interesting as well that Lanning wasn't captaining the Vicks. So Nicole Fulton, the wicketkeeper, is the, the full-time appointment yep. for that captaincy spot. Um, so I, you know, there, there would have been a time when it doesn't matter if she's going to play the whole season or not. If Meg Lanning was there, she would have been in charge but um, that that has changed so I wonder if that signals that you know she might not want to lead the national side for the rest of her career she might just yeah. um, oh. step back as a player possibly I reckon that's more a reflection of what you're saying there she won't play too often for the Vicks and thus like let them have a a full-time captain that, that's pretty common practice in England that the national captain won't be captaining their county when they return it's been the case mm. in Australia in the past as well so I wouldn't read too much into that but just generally like great thing that Meg Lanning's ready to roll again right she was out for a fair while mm. so mm. Um, I'm sure she'll have a point to prove as well Hi I'm Brian Roddle you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins well, it's a late-night recording session, so we're going to do this quietly, but we're going to play a little bit of Nerd Pledge. One number on the Nerd Pledge carousel. Uh, this game works like this. This show is free, hard to believe. Uh, some people help us fund it by sending in contributions that are not normal amounts of currency. They're specific amounts that relate to cricket in some way, and we have to work out what the number means. Can we do it? George Pearson has sent in the number. The number is $4.46. That means it's 446. Decimal point could be anywhere. What does it mean? And normally I try to find something a, a bit more niche, a bit more boutique than this, but I wonder, Adam, if this is a cap number. Because when I looked up the numbers, I noticed this. Uh, Matthew Renshaw, Peter Hanscom both making their way back into Test Cricket via the India squad. And just on timing, I thought I had to do this story because because 446 comes from one test before they debuted. Right. When two other players debuted. One of them was Callum Ferguson and the other was, how many dudes, <laughs> you know, roll like this? <laughs> Not many, Joe, Joe many. many. And and the timing just seemed... How many dudes, you know, I mean, got the skills to bowl on a slow-ass pitch? Aha, uh-huh, aha, uh-huh. I don't know. I don't know anybody. anybody. Because it strikes me, I mean, that split strikes me. You know, Callum Ferguson was has been knocking around the press box doing radio commentary mm. over the summer. Joe Many retired 
a couple of years ago now um, from domestic cricket. So you've got those two who debut in Hobart and get to play one test match. And then you've got the Hanscom and Renshaw debuts in Adelaide the next week. And they're still going. They're they're looking to push their way back into a, an Australian side. And Renshaw did play in Sydney even, you know, well, he didn't have to do much. He spent five days sitting on the sidelines with COVID and got to go out and face about eight balls at one point at the end of day two and then wait to resume his innings for a day and a half and then get declared on on five not out. It's got to be one of the weirdest test matches that anybody's mm. played, I would imagine, in terms of uh, <laughs> in terms of how that week panned out. But Joe Many from Coffs Harbour played in Newcastle, did the New South Wales route and moved to another state. Uh, you know, I'm sure Malcolm Connors tweeted about it sometimes, uh, about how many South Australian bowlers actually come from New South Wales. Went to play for Adelaide Uni in grade cricket. Uh, got a rookie deal with South Australia in 2011. Goes pretty well. Is bowling through his first couple of seasons, taking a decent number of wickets in the low 20s. I found this interesting, Adam. He was one of the early Big Bash itinerants. So playing for South Australia, but he first signs in the Big Bash for Perth. Then he goes and plays for Hobart. Then he goes and plays for the Sixers. So three teams, none of whom were ever the Adelaide Strikers. Just didn't didn't end up happening. Um 2015-16, that's his great season. I love yeah. this season, actually, because 51 wickets, leads the competition, averages 21, and doesn't take a single five for huh. in the season. Like, isn't that great? So his best innings for the season is four for 50. He bowls in 21 innings, only once does he return a none for. So he takes wickets in every in, in 20 out of 21 innings. Uh, four times he takes four and he takes a stack of threes and twos and a, and a few ones. So, that I mean, in a way, that's better consistency than someone who's who's got 50 wickets and they took eight for 20 at some point. His best numbers are four for 50. So it's not like he just came in and got four for 10 and knocked a side over. He worked yeah. away and he collected 51 wickets. That's stability. That's consistency. In club cricket over here, he'd be fined for jug avoidance. Because if you take a fire, mm-hmm. you've got to buy a jug. So he'd be, he'd be given a fine in the dressing room um, a number of times for, for forfers there. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, I, I'd interviewed him around that time. I can't remember where for, but about that story of packing up his car in Coffs Harbour and drove across, um, I think he drove across from Sydney where he was living at the time, actually. Mm. He played some club cricket in the UK maybe, but he made a decision to go to Adelaide and kind of went across the hay plane and all the rest of it, ended up mm. in South Australia. And, um, you know, it, it's one of those stories, you know, genuinely packed up his car and thought, I'll have a crack. And, yeah, that's why when he was on that trajectory and, you know, plays a couple of formats for Australia, it, it, it felt like it was a good call. Mm. Joe Manny and Blocker Wilson. Packing up their cars. Exactly. Driving to Adelaide. Exactly. Very similar, actually. <laughs> yeah. So um, September 2016 is when he gets into the one-day squad, and that was a weird one. I think he was confused about that too because he had a pretty shit one-day record and didn't think much of his own one-day bowling, really hadn't been going well in 50-over stuff. Most expensive debut analysis for an Australian player in one-day history. <laughs> None for 82 off 10 in his first Yikes. game. He got sent on that South Australian trip when they rested the main fast bowlers and, and sent across. Was it yeah. Chris Tremaine? And it was Tremaine. And I'll tell you who it was. Over. It was Tremaine, Joe Daniel Minnie Worrell. and Frankie Worrell were the three Australian yeah. quicks on that trip. They rested Hazelwood, Cummins, Star- probably before Cummins came back. Certainly Hazelwood and Stark, who were the main two in the one-day team. Oh, Mitchell Johnson. one-day cricket by then. 
And Mitchell Johnson got rested as well. He was still, I'm yeah. pretty sure, he was still a one-day cricketer at that point. Either way, they they were they were rebooting, uh, you know, post-15 World Cup win. Mm. They were still trying to work out the right combination. So, yeah, it is odd that you see these three guys who have, you know, really toiled at domestic level and had limited mm. opportunities for Australia and Australian squads, but they all played together in that one tour in South Africa, which is immediately before Riley Russo goes Colpack and Russo teed off and destroyed all of them. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think Johnson was done by then and Cummins was playing. Because Cummins plays in 2015 and maybe Johnson. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. After, yeah. after that World Cup. That's right. But um, he gets in the test squad later that summer, picked for his lower order batting, according to Rod Marsh, um, <laughs> when Peter, Peter Siddle does his back after the first test. That's right. Jamie no, you, 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 you're conflating two things there. What, what it was was that Jackson Bird didn't play mm-hmm. – Yep. The first test of the series, which was at the Wacker, and they played Pete Siddle, but they, they didn't pick. The reason why Jackson Bird didn't get in the squad at all in that first test match was because mm-hmm. his batting at number 11 was inferior. And he, so he was <laughs> out of the squad, <laughs> out of the squad when in the second yep. test match, of course, they get pumped at the Wacker. They go to Hobart. They already had their squad there. So that's why mm-hmm. Joe Many gets, um, gets a start and... Mm-hmm. Callum Ferguson gets gets brought into the squad, flies in. You know, remember there was the um, the stakeout at the airport to try and work out who was in the team, and they they caught a. I think it was Alistair Nicholson from the ABC caught a glimpse of him on a flight into Hobart, and that was it. That was the yarn heading into the Test match, and well, put it this way, it wouldn't be the yarn a couple of days later when they were bundled out for eighty five. Mm. Yes, so that that was it, uh, short and sharp for Joe Manny, but he did play another three Shield seasons, played a season for Lancashire, returned. Good results, stayed effective in October 2021. He was only 32 years old, decided he'd had enough of that life, uh, packed up his car and drove to uh, the UK where he signed for the Oxton Cricket Club yeah. in early 2022 in the Cheshire County Cricket League. Really? I don't know if he's knocking around again for Oxton this season, but he did play for them last year. Well, if he is, we should seek him out. Um, we're we'll, we're going to try and do a live show. Uh, when we're in uh, in Manchester, in that part of the world, uh, in Lancashire, l- later in the year. So uh, maybe we'll see if Joe Manny's about to have a beer with us. How's that sound? <laughs> uh, that is Nerd Pledge. If you want to play the game, go to patron.com slash the final word. Sign up, put your number in. You can help us keep making the show and you can be part of it. Uh, Jeff, uh, before we go to the final part of the show, I just wanted to post something up. We've been talking a lot about the Lord's Taverners through 2022 and into 2023. Uh, the big push from us at the moment is getting as many people as we can to sign up uh, to be on the Lord's Taverners mailing list. Simple as that. We're not asking you to do anything more than simply sign up and, and learn about their activities. And I did that, Jeff, and I learned about their activities. And at the moment, you know, new year, new me and all that. Um, I, I've been yeah, doing a wee bit of fitness, just trying to get my act together again. You know, new arrival, you start thinking about these things. And I, I've been kind of sniffing around for a bit of a challenge of late. And I've spotted, I've spied the Edinburgh Half Marathon is an event that has a Lord's Taverners delegation. It is the bank holiday oh. weekend in May. I think it's the weekend before what will probably be the World Test Championship final. May 29, I want to say. And I've been talking to the tabs and I am going to run the Edinburgh Half Marathon for the Lord's Taverners. And I thought huh. maybe other, maybe others could as well from the final week community. So if, if you want to be part of this with me in Edinburgh in the final weekend in May, it's bank holiday weekend, so you can kind of make a three-day holiday of it. 
I think this is the time. Get in touch with us in the usual way and let us know. And in the process, if you can sign up to the TAB's mailing list, you can also find out other creative ways to get involved with their fundraising pushes through 2023. How's that sound? Will you come and join us? Goodness me. Am I going to run a half marathon? You're not going to run a half uh, marathon. You can come and give no. the water out. You can't run 400 metres. But, no. you, but you could but you could conceivably, you know, run the, the – you could find us at different points on the route Probably not give it, not giving mm. us drinks, but give us you know sturdy encouragement wearing the Lord's Taverners vests. Look, I will, I will. In my defence, I will say I've got up to six k, but I'm not going to do what? What's half marathon? 21. 21. 21. 21. 21's too many. It's too many kilometres. You're not supposed to be. <laughs> no one should be going beyond single figures. That's unnecessary. I've done um, one before. I, I did a half marathon, the Torquay to Torbay half marathon, mm-hmm. uh, in you know as you'd expect, Torquay and Torbay over here, in 2012, no. just before the Olympic Games, uh, and got around it. I think it was an hour 41. I wonder, 11 years on, what time I might clock. I mean, I think if I break two hours, I'd be happy. I don't feel like I'm, you know, any fitter than I was then. I'm yeah, you know, doing a lot of yoga, right? But bowling a lot of yeah. off-spin, but I don't think my um, mm. my running is... Low impact. Low impact. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll get back on the treadmill next couple of weeks and <laughs> I'll probably annoy you when I'm in India, when I'm going off for runs and so on to get the training levels up, get the loads up. Okay. But yes, um, what's, the, what's the link we've got for signing up? It's uh, bit.ly forward slash tab sign up. We'll put that in the show notes. That's it. That's it. And if I can say get a motorised cooler um, with like a little keg in it and I can just ride along the course while pouring refreshments and, <laughs> and enjoying them, then that I think would be the ideal way for me to do the half marathon with you. <laughs> well, let, 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 so in the coming weeks, I'll learn more about this. I'll, I'll sign the dotted line today. Now you're in support. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. I think the okay. goal is to raise like 300 quid or something. Let's raise like 3,000 quid. Let's do this properly. Let's raise a lot of money for the tabs on the way through. Let's get some other final worders running around with me. I'm sure there are plenty of fitness fanatics and those who like setting themselves ambitious tasks amongst our listenership. So get in touch with us in the usual ways, maybe on Discord, where you can access through being one of our patrons, patreon.com forward slash the final word or on email or social media or whatever it is. And we can get a crew together, a running crew. Mm-hmm. All right. All right. We can have people run along and talk about the cricket as they go. Uh, a little bit of action during the week for running out the non-striker, a particular pet topic of this show. <laughs> the India-Sri Lanka game was interesting in which Rohit Sharma withdrew the appeal after Mohamed Shami ran out Dustin Shanaka at the non-striker's end on 98. Um, safe to say that this one would have gone very sour had they actually seen it through, but it was... It was interestingly placed because it was with three balls to go in a match that Sri Lanka had no hope of winning. So it wasn't the old, uh, it's so close and, and, and thus the bowling sides turning to it out of desperation. You know, it was the opposite of that. It was more just making making the point. You know, just because you're on 98 at the non-striker's end doesn't mean you can take off a metre early, you know, as the bowler's coming in. So Shami did take the bails and did appeal and it would have been given, but Rohit Sharma recognised that there was nothing particularly to gain in the match and, and decided to, to bail out on it. Um, and we had Adam Zampa's one in the Big Bash where he wanted to go through with it but uh, was deemed by the third umpire to have gone through with the bowling action. His arm had gone past the vertical before he turned around to take the bails off. But, yeah. you know, at least we're seeing some bails being taken even if the results haven't 
ended up in dismissals. It's happening. It's happening. Yep. DJ Shami nearly put us into mancat heaven uh, with that um, yesterday. But there was that's another development during the week that um, Benny Horn uh, spoke to uh, relatives of Vinu Mancat who are like, um, yeah, just call it Mancat. It's all good. It's a tribute. So I think we're, we're good to go on that again, which is helpful. Um, there was a couple well, of years Well, it always has there. been for us, you know. There's, yeah, it's like yeah. the, the, the Kreif turn or whatever. It's a move. It's a, e- exactly. a, a Barishnikov. Exactly. And, and even though yeah. people felt that, that this is the the contradiction, right? We demystifying it, turning it into a relatively normal thing, saying that it's not ethically compromised. Why shouldn't the name be associated with it for all the right reasons? As a tribute to mm. the great Vinu, who's that one of the final word faves across a long time now. Yeah, so uh, I think the answer to the India question is simply to make Ashwin the captain across all three formats immediately. Uh, there'll be no withdrawing of appeals if um, if the brain box that is Reva Chandra mm-hmm. Ashwin is in charge. So I think there, there's something there. Get him in there. Let him flourish. Oh, Give yeah, him the he'd chance. He'd be a brilliant India. captain. Ashwin as captain. It wouldn't just be a man-cat thing either. It'd be across the board. You can imagine the innovative fields we'd see from him, mm-hmm. the, the funky declarations, the reversing of the batting order, all of the shit that we advance is like potentially exciting in test cricket. You can expect mm-hmm. that Ashwin will consider it. Uh, and he yes. will have no. He will not be withdrawing appeals for running out the non-striker. That's for sure as well. You've you've got to remember that this is the guy who needing two runs to win a must-win game at a T20 World Cup played a leave. Yes, left the ball alone down the leg side. Nobody else is as cool as that. Nobody else is as calm as that. Nobody else has the titanium cojones of this man. Like he's, he's got to be given the chance to express himself. If you have a great artist, you give them a big canvas and you see what they do with it. We've, we've seen batters. There's always batters captaining. It's always, oh, you've got to be in the top three to be the captain of India. Let Ashwin go. Give him a couple of years. Give him his head. Let him run free. Take the bridle off. Let him frolic in the pastures of leadership and see what happens. Stokes v Ashwin in a captaincy contest. I want to see that. Let that happen. Make us happy. Hear, hear is all I can say to that. Well elaborated upon. I like it. Um, just to go back to the Zampa, um, the Zampa attempt. Ali Mitch raised a pretty good <laughs> what, point. What a clusterfuck. <laughs> right, Ali, Ali Mitch raised a pretty good point about expected point of release. Mm. At the expected point of release... The non-striker's fucking miles out of his crease. Mm. You know, she, she went back through it frame by frame. The non-striker left the crease way before Zampa's arm mm. reached the, you know, 38th parallel, whatever we're calling it. Um, yes. So the, yeah, a strict interpretation of the laws is that, it, you know, I appreciate why there is this sort of shorthand way of understanding when you can and when you can't, right? Mm-hmm. If you go above the vertical, then you can't, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there's another way of looking at this is that if the batter has left their crease before the expected point of release, it's just game on anyway. I don't. Th- I think yeah, I actually it doesn't think, matter what happens after. I, I actually think it was out. Yeah. I actually think no. it was out. And that won't be a popular opinion, I'm sure. Uh, but I reckon that what I've seen is enough to suggest that it doesn't matter if your arm goes through if the batter has left their crease mm. before that juncture. They are fair game. Yep. And if your bowling action takes you through over the top, then so be it. I get why they've got it there, by the way. I spoke to Fraser at great length last year about this at the Cricket Writers' Lunch. He probably wanted me to fuck off. I'd had a few bottles of wine by that point. But I was saying to him that the expected point of release (laughs) is problematic because 
um, of what we saw with Deep Sharma, and you know, it's it's quite subjective. And he's like, well, and imagine it differs, it differs for different bowlers. Yeah, and, and he goes, well, imagine a, a world where it is the release point, and someone could windmill their arms around and around and around and around again. It it it'd reduce yeah. the whole thing to fast. And I agree, it would. But um, yeah, well, maybe it, it maybe the encourage. law is maybe the law is perfectly fine, but expected point of release puts the onus on the batter to be in their crease till the time the ball the, the bowler reaches that parallel that reaches that um, vertical, and if they leave before that point, then then mm. they can be run out any old how coming over the top, going around the back, um, <laughs> around the tradies. So do, trailer park it, girls it, go around the outside. Does it doesn't um, you know what I'm saying? Does this make sense? Yeah. It it does make sense. I mean, the 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 point of release thing is so that you don't have players fake bowling and then turning around having fake bowled, having got the non-striker to leave the crease. But yeah, yeah, like you say, if the, if the non-striker's already gone before the arms come up, well, it doesn't matter where your point of release is. I mean, that's something you can only adjudicate with TV replays. Yeah, but yeah, if you if you want to make it simple, I mean. You can call it the vertical, but like you say, if the non-strike has already gone before you've reached the vertical, then why does it matter if you reach the vertical after that? Well, if you're you know, a fast in, bowler, if you get up into your load up and you get, I can see a world where you want to run out a non-striker and, you, and you, your, your arm falls over the top and it rules it out. And, you know, again, like a lot of things in cricket, things we've spoken about today on the show, this isn't perfect. The law is not perfect mm. because it, it does at community level when you're having got all the TV cameras and the third umpire to turn to, you're asking a lot of the central umpire to mm-hmm. make that assessment whilst watching the front foot, whilst watching, you know, the business end all broadly at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. So that none of this is easy. But, yeah, maybe that is a tweak to this interpretation because, uh, you know, I thought it was very well explained. My first impression was fair fucks to the third umpire they explained it so well based on their interpretation of the law and we mm. kind of needed one to be fucked up. We kind of needed one not to go well to, 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 to provide evidence to bowlers of how to do it wrong, you know. It's like mm. that Gareth scene in the office, you know, how do you lift, you know, bend your knees, um, safe, or, um, safe or dangerous. Like to, to be a safe man cad, as it were, and to do it safely. Forget all the white noise about fucking warnings and... All this shit, you can just yeah, as ever. You can disregard all of that nonsense about um, about you know should they penalise the batting team and all that. You just, it's just all it's all guff. The only thing that really matters is does the law in practice work? Do people understand mm-hmm. it? And is it fair? And I wonder whether the third part of this might be helped along by the Zampa example because Cooper. What's that? Mm. To say something Cooper is it? It's Rogers. Tom Rogers was um, was well and truly breaking the line well before the expected point of release. Food for thought, MCC. Yep. We'll be on you again. Maybe not after a couple of bottles of wine at the Cricket Riders <laughs> next time. <laughs> Choose your moments. Choose your moments. Yeah. Um, a word for SKY, Suri Kamiyato, yes. gets another T20 International Century against the Sri Lankans, 112 off 51. No worries. He's got three of them now. So that's Bloody Maxi, Colin Munro, and Sabawun Dawisi for the Czech Republic. They're the players who've got three T20 internationals. Got to get him on the show. Sub, what's his name? Sabawun Dawisi. Yes. So if anyone Czech. knows Sabawun, get him in touch with us. We've got to get him on the show. Mm-hmm. 
We've got to find out the story behind these three T20i hundreds. Rohit Sharma has four of them. Um, so, you know, SKY, he's, he's, he's heading up into elite territory in that list. And uh, another one-day international ton for Virat Kohli. So he's, he's just getting moving again, Kohli, after he's being stuck in the mud for about three years. So that's two one-day tons in his last two innings against West Indies and Sri Lanka, who are his two favourite punching bags. I think he's made nine tonnes against each of them. So that's that's 45 one-day tonnes that he's up to now. That's 73 international hundreds all up. You know, he got going with the Afghanistan one, now a couple of 50-over ones. The hundred hundreds, the dream isn't dead yet. It's not dead yet. Okay. Keep a watching brief on that throughout 2023, as we will the World Test Championship final and all the various different machinations, Jeff. Um, because Australia didn't win at Sydney, they go to India needing to take something from that. The shorthand is this. So long as Australia don't get Polax 4-0 and other results don't go their way, they're through. If they get mm-hmm. one draw, doesn't matter what happens, they're through. Yep. If, they, if they lose 4-0 and Sri Lanka and or South Africa get busy in their final series, Sri Lanka playing New Zealand in New Zealand and mm-hmm. um, South Africa playing the Windies at home in March, April, I think it is, that could put Australia in a wee bit of strife. So that would be the added frustration in all of this is that they actually had the chance, had they beat South Africa, and they surely would have, yeah. to have made this a non-event going to India. Yeah, and, and I think just leaping back to that thing about the pitch in the first place, the fact that Australia were four for 500 basically after not even two days of batting, that's really what I'm getting at with the surface in Sydney. It's just Mm. too easy to bat on a lot of the time. Right. It took hard work, but they ended up, they they could have made 700, you know, had it not been raining, they might've made 720 declared the way that they were going at that point. But yeah, I think that if, so if Sri Lanka whitewashed New Zealand, then they could knock Australia off, but I don't think South Africa can. South Africa could get through ahead of India um, if results right. go weird and if India lose badly. But, yeah, basically, if India go 3-1, then they'll go through um, or, or they'll still make it, depending on other results, even if it's less dramatic than that. West Indies or England, technically possible. The Windies can India make it. get whitewashed. The Windies could make it if India get whitewashed and if everybody else ahead of the West Indies loses, like every, everyone who could otherwise make it loses. So if imagine South Africa the, lose <laughs> imagine, imagine the Windies yeah. win 2-0 against South Africa, two of the worst teams in the world at the moment. I feel the same way about the Saffirs, by the way. They knock off the Windies 2-0 and they manage to sneak through. It, it wouldn't help the credibility of the WTC on the basis of what we've seen this summer in Australia. Yeah. We really, truly need an Australia-India final at the Oval in mm. June. Uh, not often do I barrack for, you know, the big dogs in this one, but, I, you know, ordinarily I'd love to see a Sri Lankan upset or something like that or some other configuration. But this, right now, the WTC is mm. on trial and will be for mm-hmm. the next couple of years. We need, we need everything to go right. And mm-hmm. to be blunt, India winning it will go a long way. We need India to well. make the World Test Championship final. And we need India to beat Australia at the Oval. That's the best chance to keep Test cricket relevant going forward. If India don't make it or if they don't win it, you know, toys out the pram is a huge chance. We know that mm. because, well, we know that, right? We know that. So we, we, the, the, I'm barracking for the yarn. I can't wait for Sri Lanka to beat Australia in the World Test Championship final after they <laughs> squeeze out India. Big Angelo Matthews comes on, has a bowl for the first time in about six <laughs> years, nibbles it around, some early movement. 
nicks off the entire top order, four for 12, um, and away they go on their merry, merry way. Who knows? You can't rule it out in this big, business. Big Angelo Matthew 69, forever. Forever, forever. Asterisk. Right. I think that brings us to the end of a weekly show. You probably have a family you need to go and spend some time with. I do. Maybe you people listening have families you should spend some time with as well. But I'm glad that you chose to spend this time with us. As always, uh, it's been the final word. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Uh, we'll be back on the weekend with story time, or I will. Um, we'll work that out. Things are in flux over the next couple of weeks. <laughs> but we're, we're back to our regular two shows a week rhythm for the next few weeks until we go to India when we will meet in the orange city of Nagpur and start our odyssey from there. But for the next few weeks, it'll be a, a calm, serene, relaxing final word environment as we hang out with our new baby and... Our, I say ours, it's, but, you know, it's effectively... It, Effectively mine as well. It's, the, it's, it's a final word, baby, that's for sure. And I just want to say in closing that, uh, and I neglected to mention this at the start, that so many members of the final word crew, um, again, be it on Discord or elsewhere, got in touch um, to pass on their well wishes to Rach. Winnie and myself, and they were enormously appreciated. So thank you to everybody who wrote um, or, or got in touch um, in the last four or five days. It's been pretty cool knowing that, you know, this baby's coming into the world with a lot of love from this lovely corner of the internet. Yep. Well, that's uh, the way we keep on doing what we're doing. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon. Got to go to India. I had to go.